glad you're here. So this is season two where we're talking about 80s and 90s kids movies we grew up loving and sometimes fearing. And I'm noticing that in the 90s, the fearing isn't so much a thing. It was just all of those really crazy 80 movies that we feared. You know, like, I mean... If you haven't listened already, the never-ending story, but also thinking about the labyrinth and the dark crystal, there's just a lot of creepiness out there. The witches. Oh, do you remember the witches with Angelica Houston? Um, So many I could have talked about, but I just didn't have time to do so. But in the 90s, it's all about sports movies. And that's what we're talking about today. One of my favorite sports movies. It is, of course, The Little Giants. We're going to talk about another one, I do believe. We're not talking about my all-time favorite. I I did not put The Sandlot on the list. Uh, I love that one so absolutely dearly. It's probably one of the movies that I quote the most. But I wanted to throw some love at ones that we haven't talked about or that don't get talked about very often, which leads me to lazy internet research. And when it came to Little Giants, this one was a little tricky. There's not a lot out there when it comes to lazy internet research, but I did find a few interesting tidbits that I thought I'd share with you. So (laughs) the leads in the movie are played by Ed O'Neill, who plays Kevin O'Shea, and we'll talk about him, of course, and Rick Moranis as Danny O'Shea, his younger brother. But originally, Gary Busey and Randy Quaid were cast as the leads and that would have just been a completely different movie uh Devin Sawa yes he's back I do adore him he was 15 during filming and much taller than his 10 year old castmates so in some of the scenes you can see that he's only wearing socks to kind of make him shorter which I thought was kind of funny one in one scene in particular make sure you look for it it's when uh, the little giants get together at Danny and Becky's house um, they're celebrating the starting of the team. It's a party. And as as they're leaving, and I had not read this tidbit before uh, doing the rewatch, but I was like, why is he just in his socks? That's a little weird. <laughs> Nobody else has their shoes off. So that's kind of funny. The movie idea came from a Super Bowl ad, a McDonald's Super Bowl ad. Turns out that Steven Spielberg loved the ad and reached out to the commercial people, encouraging them to write a script and turn it into a movie. It was originally going to be called A Perfect Season, more focused on the relationship between Danny and Kevin O'Shea. And then it kind of, as they were kind of hitting writer's block, it came to one of the writers that, no, this is really a story about the kids who don't get picked, which I like that a lot better. The NFL put a lot of money in the movie. That's why they became the Cowboys and the Giants. They were originally Notre Dame and USC based on the two brothers' businesses. Um, The Alka-Seltzer drool. So in the climax of the story, which we'll talk about the big game where the two teams are playing each other, Jake, this scrawny, scrappy, ridiculous-looking young boy with giant glasses, he decides that he's going to help the team intimidate the Cowboys, the stronger, faster, better, more athletic team by putting Alka-Seltzers in their mouth and then letting the foam kind of drip out of their mouths like they're, I don't know, um, got rabies or something. (laughs) Uh, But the Alka-Seltzer was actually toothpaste. The kids brushed their teeth before filming. And as it started, as they started filming, they just let it spill out of their mouths. Um, and last t- tidbit estimated that was the budget was about $20 million. It brought in just over $19 million, so almost made it all back. It wasn't a big hit. Um, again, there were some other sports movies that came out 
the the big green, the mighty ducks, which we're going to talk about, the Sandlot, Rookie of the Year, Major Big League. There were so many sports movies during the 90s. This is not necessarily considered um, one of the most, uh, I don't even know the word for it, the most the hottest ticket. Um, but I think it's one of the most beloved still outside of Sandlot and the Mighty Ducks. I kind of think this one is up there a lot because of the story of Becky, the icebox, who is a girl who wants to play, um, and isn't afraid, you know, to get her, to get her hands dirty and to knock the boys down. Um, but also just because there's just a sweet relationship between the brothers in the end. And, um, it's got such a quirky cast of kids and we'll talk about that more. So, but that is all I have. That is all the lazy internet research I could come up with. There was a fun article by ESPN when the movie hit one of its milestones, maybe 20 years, 25 years, um, worth a read. They kind of go back through with the writers, how it all was developed, and then some of the cast members as well. So really good, really good. So who's ready for the spoiler-filled walkthrough of the movie? So we're going to do this a little differently this time. I, like I mentioned in the first episode in the 80s, I'm trying to feel out the best way to do this. Uh, so season one, as I was talking about Disney animated movies, I just kind of did a list, but I didn't feel like I ended up with any context within the movie. So I was just throwing things out at you. And if you hadn't watched the movie in a while, it might've been confusing. So I've been trying to do more of summaries, um, but that gets long. <laughs> so I'm going to try to do kind of a bit of both. And, and I really like the idea of going back to the parts of a story because I think that's really important. And that's the part that I love the most. I love storytelling, how a story is kind of built, where, what they do with setting and character development. So we'll try to weave some of that in. So this is just not completely off the rails from what I've been doing, but a, a, a chance to kind of look at it maybe, maybe a little different, break it up a little more. So let's kick this off with the exposition and introduction of the conflict. Of course, like all good 90s kids movies, apparently it starts with the flashback. It's Urbania, Ohio, 1964. We have two brothers walking down this beautiful fall street. The younger brother, Danny, who obviously idolizes his older brother, Kevin, is following him around um, and dreaming of football grandeur, kind of uh, doing recaps of favorite famous plays, putting him in himself in the plays. Danny goes down the field, catches the ball, you know, like little kids do. And little Danny is totes adorable. He kind of looks like squints from the sandlet a little bit. He's got big glasses. He's just real cute. The two end up though at a local park for a game of pickup football. And here we get some character development. First, Danny is a bit of a nerd. <laughs> He's cute, but he's a bit of a nerd. He talks a lot. Um, he just is kind of very eager. And then, two, we have Kevin, who is a jerk. He doesn't pick his brother for the team, leaving him sadly on the sidelines. There's a little bit of redemption with Kevin when he imagines a future where the two team up to rule the town. You know, the O'Shea brothers who are just going to rule everything. But instead of him bringing him into the fold, he just leaves him out. And in that moment, Danny, as the girl he has a crush on, Patty, walks up to him and it's like, hey, Danny, why aren't you playing? He puts himself on the injured list. And that's kind of an important piece to remember. He um, kind of talks away not being picked because that hurts and say, oh, I'm on the injured list. And he starts to fake limp. Then we transition to modern day Pee Wee League football tryouts. Kevin is much older. 
<laughs> it's been like 20 years. He seems to be the head coach and is in love with himself and the little power he wields. We've got some obvious stars and some obvious outcasts on the field trying out who are most definitely, we're going to fall in love with them. It's just inevitable. This includes Icebox, also known as Becky, Kevin's niece, Danny's daughter, who loves the game, is good at it, and isn't afraid to beat the boys who have a problem with a girl on the field. Uh, but just like in 1964, when Kevin starts to go through the roster and, you know, taking kids and cutting them, Kevin's chip on his shoulder keeps him from having his niece join the team. It's, it's ego over family, and it appears that he also didn't follow through on building a great life with his brother in town. On the water tower, it just says, home of football, great, football's great, Kevin O'Shea. He, is, he has built this legendary persona for himself in this town, and his brother's just a local mechanic or local gas station operator. So he never followed through there. He's not willing to step out and have Becky on the team. So with all the outcasts left out, there's only one thing that can really be done, just like in all underdog movies. They'll just have to form their own team and prove everyone, especially Coach Kevin, wrong. So that's a pretty quick exposition and conflict, the first 10 minutes or so of the movie. It's not, it's not a novel idea. You kind of think of specifically the Mighty Ducks. Yes, it's hockey versus football, but it's the same concept. You have this group of misfit kids who aren't good enough to make the better team who form their own team, um, have a, a coach, a kind of a reluctant coach. It, it just all kind of lines up in the same way. They're quirky, they're funny, and you grow to love them. And that's part of the charm of the movie. But I, what I think this particular movie stands apart or maybe not even that just makes it fun and worth a watch is definitely the casting. Ed O'Neill and Rick Moranis as Kevin and Danny O'Shea were perfect choices. Like I said, I don't see how Gary Busey and Randy Quaid could have worked at this at all. You have Ed who plays Chip on his shoulder really well, but he does it in a, which we'll talk about later, kind of, he's an antagonist, but not a villain, which I just think is a beautiful way to do that. Um, you still like him. He's not a bad guy. He has bad motivations, but then you have that coupled with Rick Moranis, who is just sweet and kind and thoughtful and compassionate and cares for these kids in a big way. So I just like how they, they do that. And of course we have our crew of outcasts, which <laughs> some of these kids just kill me. A few other thoughts on the exposition and conflict. In real life, how common are tree houses and hangouts? This is not the first time this has been brought up in 90s movies. We talked about it on Tuesday, actually, with Now and Then, when the girls have their own tree house. The movies would lead us to believe that every kid has one. Is that why I never had that one transformative summer or school year? Because I didn't have a tree house or a hangout? It's really kind of a bummer. I mean, think of Little Rascals, too. They built their own little clubhouse, trying to think of who else had situations like that. I know there are more. I know there are more. So it just kind of, I don't know. I, I, I feel let down by my childhood now. Come on, Mom and Dad, why didn't you give me a treehouse? I can't think, though, of, number two, of a sadder existence than living off my glory days. Kevin has built his life around his former football status. He was a Heisman Trophy winner. So he spends his days after he leaves work from his car dealership going to the diner to talk with the the regulars, the locals, and 
going through plays and games that he won. And it just, that just seems so sad to me. I actually feel really bad for Kevin and makes me love Danny more because he actually built a life for himself. And number three, how great is Rick Moranis? I mean, seriously, what a gem. Ghostbusters, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, Little Shop of Horrors, just an icon. And you adore him even more when you know he stepped away from acting to care for his kids after his wife passed away, that that was the most important thing to him. It's kind of like he really was Danny O'Shea. So it just... It was so fun to see him again, and I think I read somewhere that he's going to be in a a remake, or maybe that's already come out. I don't know if Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. I'm going to have to look that up. Oh, so, so good. Now onto the rising action, which is 98% of the movie. Well, probably, actually, let's say 90. 90% of the movie, because the last 10% of the movie is is the big game, which we'll talk about here. So, rising action. Step one, build the team. Sure, we have the kids that didn't make the initial tryouts, but four kids do not a football team make. So there's nothing quite like a montage of traveling around town to pick up random children to be a part of this crew. We have Hanon, who can't catch. He was one of the four. Tad, who was just super slow, um, very sweet. He was part of the four. Zoltek, who has a problem with flatulence, was part of the floor. And Icebox, the jilted niece, Becky. Then we pick up Newbie, who is a kid genius and a... And he's brought on to be assistant coach. We have Jake, who should really be living in a bubble. Um, You're going to love Jake. Big glasses, really horrible haircut, scrawny as can be. God love him. He actually reminds me of my little nephew, who is just a toothpick. Sweetest kid on the world. I think my nephew has some more athletic ability, though. Uh, But just... They're both just so cute. Then we have Johnny, who hates that his dad always has to work, so he's kind of a kid left on his own a lot. Marcus, the crazy kicker, um, Asian kicker, he's he's great. And, of course, you have Junior, the unexpected find, the athlete, the stud himself, Mr. Devin Sawa. Yes, two movies in a row. I know. I purposely have not put him in any of the other ones, so don't worry. But So then that was step one. Find your team. Step two, create a reason for a big game. Apparently, in peewee league football, a town can only have one team, which makes absolutely zero sense. So you're telling me that parents have to travel around the state every single weekend to play different teams? Is this... Is this like um, in Little League, you'd have all-stars? Is that what this <laughs> is? This, this is? But don't the all-stars then in Little League get picked from the teams that play each other at the league? So I don't understand peewee football at all. I don't actually understand football at all, but that's okay. Um, but that's where we get the tension. If, if there are now the outcasts and Kevin O'Shea's team, the Cowboys, that can't happen. There can't be two teams on the book. So they have to play one another to determine who is going to represent the town. So there you go. That's where it kind of the conflict comes in. And then step three, uh, let the kids be kids, which is why I always love this movie. There are some great quotes by the kids. I'm going to attempt to, to share a few with you. It's not the same as watching the movie. So Please do a rewatch if you haven't in a while or if you've never seen it. This would be the perfect time. So you have Zoltek, who, again, has gas issues. And then you have Hanon, who is the sweet little boy who can just never catch the ball. And Zoltek says to him, we never get picked for anything. Life stinks. And Hanon says, yeah, there goes my shot at the pros. I'm going to have to be a senator. 
I just love where kids' heads go. I think they did a really good job of writing for kids in this. They don't sound too old. Um, and they kept it clean, which is still fun. And there could be a lot of different things you can say clean, which I just love too. So then you have Sean Murphy, who is on the Cowboys. Um, so he was one that had gotten picked. And this is another one with Zoltek. Murphy is saying, get ready, dog breath, because when I'm finished with you, you'll be farting out of your mouth and talking out of your butt. And Zoltek goes, is that physically possible? He then promptly gets hit in the movie. And it does seem as though Zoltek is talking out of his butt. And Tad, cute little Tad is like, huh, yeah, it is possible. Then you have Jake at one moment during the big game, who is getting, um, picked on by the older kids and they say something about his mother and he comes back with don't be talking about my mama and if you said these big glasses and this kid with a snot bubble coming out of his nose it's just great so right before the big game coach rick moranis is handing out jerseys the kids have been playing in just random wear in fact zoltek he wears a darth vader helmet through practices which is just spectacular um so Danny O'Shea has gotten them real jerseys and Tad Simpson goes death shrouds <laughs> no shake they've got your names on the back and Jake goes so the guys at the morgue can identify the bodies it's just I, it's not as good when I do it I realize that one more though so newbie who is the assistant coach says you always run the ball why can't I no that's not true oh sorry this is Tad I'm wrong Tad is saying this. You always run the ball. Why can't I run the ball? And Hainan goes, because you're slow and no one likes you. <laughs> uh, and that was Emily's poor rendition of some of her favorite quotes in the movie. I don't think this will stick around in future episodes, but you get it this time. So, you know, lucky you. So let's review. Step one, build the team. Step two, create a reason for a big game. Step three, let the kids be the kids. They are kind of leading the church here in the movie. It is about them. And then step four, add a little more conflict because just the game isn't enough. Becky, understandably, develops a bit of a crush on Junior, which leads to a self-esteem nosedive, which is kind of exacerbated because she was raised by a single dad. Her mom had left her at a young age. And so she's been raised as a tomboy, loves athletics, um, loves to, you know, get her nose dirty, doesn't really know how to play with dolls or wear makeup or, you know, act like a girl, whatever that is supposed to mean. I mean, why would Junior want to date a teammate when he could be with her cute cheerleader cousin? This leads to, so that's, that's the conflict. Becky is now torn between wanting to be a part of this team that her that really she conned her dad into starting. She kind of tricked him into starting it because she wasn't picked for the team. She loves the game. She's very good at the game. But then having her hormones kind of go crazy and having a crush on a boy and kind of wondering if there's more out there. Um, and in that, at least to a very sincere conversation between Becky and her uncle Kevin, showing he's not an irredeemable jerk. I just I really love the fact that despite the differences the brothers might have, Kevin still has a relationship with his niece. I think that's fantastic. But at the very end of the conversation, she goes, Uncle Kevin, do you think I'm pretty? And he said, no, I don't. I think you're beautiful. And it was so sincere. And you could just see her kind of glow. Beautiful moment. Really like that. And for just that little extra dose of obstacle, you have to toss in a new kid in town, Spike, who refers to himself in the third person and is scary on the football field. He's got a dad who 
um, appears to be in the armed services. He has a flat top and is kind of strict and very intense. Well, Danny tricks him into being on the little giants because he goes to meet him. The dad is like, Oh, you're, you're O'Shea. You know, this is your coach O'Shea. This is awesome. I came to this town because of you, because of you. I loved all your, your football stuff. Ugh. Um, and so Spike starts to train with the little giants and then Kevin steps in and is like, uh, no. And so he finds out Danny isn't the Heisman Trophy winning O'Shea, so he defects to the Cowboys. So you have this kind of live wire, in a sense, out on the field as well. And there's one more step, though, as a part of the rising action. Step five, create an opportunity for unexpected inspiration. Especially in an underdog movie, this is imp very important. Because no underdog will go into whatever it is they're trying to do, thinking they're actually going to be successful if all of the odds are stacked to get them with against them without this inspiration point. So, uh, for instance, in this particular movie, we have a professional foot football team that just randomly drives through Urbania, uh, and coach Madden thinking it would be a great life choice stops on the side of the road in their big bus because, um, no, it's very well known that Madden didn't like to fly. So he would just kind of drive everywhere from game to game. And he asks a very small child for direction stops Tad on the side of the road. Who's riding his bicycle, this 10 year old to ask for directions. Good thing he does though, because we get, um, this hilarious scene of Zoltek finally blocking. So the professional football player, and I don't know who it is because I don't, he, he was a tall white dude. He's kind of helping Zoltek learn how to block and, and kind of build him up and like, let's do this. You can do this. And he gets, gets him mad enough that he can knock him down. Um, and then we have a group that a guy that is talking to them about their intimidation face and is helping them <laughs> try to look intimidating. The one guy I do know, Emmett Smith is there and he's talking about how he was never the fastest. He was never the tallest. He was never the strongest. Um, but look at where he is now. And we also learn that football is 80% mental and 40% physical. It's a great sequence, great montage. Uh, just the inspiration that these kids needed. All of that, all of those five steps lead us to the big game, the climax. But before we run through that, a few thoughts. The night before the big game and after the conversation um, in the diner with her uncle, Becky and Junior have a conversation about kissing. Becky ends up upset because Junior basically, basically doesn't have, doesn't seem to have any interest in wanting to kiss her. He likes her and he likes that she's different from other girls, but she's like, well, if, if I was one of those cheerleaders you'd probably want to kiss me. And he doesn't really answer, honestly. Uh, but Becky is pretty upset. So she goes to her aunt's house and she ends up coming home with a cheerleading outfit. Then she just really lays into her dad. Now I have no problem with her being like, you know what? I would like to be a cheerleader. Cool. Football isn't for me anymore. Cool. But you, this it's two weeks from the time that she got cut to the time this game is. So it's not that long of a time going on. She's not known junior for very long. Um, what bothers me is that she had tricked her father into coaching this team and then just lays into him about being obsessed with winning when at no point in the movie does he really come off as obsessed with winning. 
she's the one that started the team. She was the one that kind of tricked him. She was the one that insisted they get Junior as the quarterback. I mean, the whole movie is driven by her desire to play. And then she gets super moody with her dad and projects on him. It was a little annoying. annoying. And I know she's a child. Her brain is not fully formed. She's a girl experiencing new things. I get all of that. But that part I didn't love. I, I wish if that is the angle they wanted to go with, I kind of wish they had made it the way she had she had her perspective so that Danny did seem more eager to win. But I never that didn't really come across to me. And during the rewatch, I realized we don't really get a lot of time with the kids. This is a quick movie. The rising action does a great job of showing that the outcasts are lovable, ridiculous misfits, but there's not a ton there. There is one montage, though, that is worth it. It's worth the whole movie. It's the night before the big game. And the giants, they're trying to pump themselves up. They're all at their individual houses. They're all doing whatever it is they do to, to get hyped, to get pumped for this game. Tad has decided to stack um, a big tower of things that don't look safe so that he can do pull-ups. So he's standing on this tower and you think he's doing pull-ups with one arm, uh, but no, he's just really doing squats. Marcus, our kicker, has covered his entire face with eye black. (laughs) So he starts out with just under the eyes like football players do. And then it cuts away and it comes back to him and he's got it all over his face. And, And Jake, the child who has a perpetual snot bubble coming out of his nose, he took the intimidation conversation with a professional star. And so he's standing in front of his bedroom mirror, this teeny tiny scrawny body, and he just continues to practice and almost doing like, you talking to me? Are you talking to me? Oh, that, that whole montage there is worth it. it they're so cute. I, I just want to be friends with them all. <laughs> but that leads us to the climax, the big game, a quick play-by-play of the game. So it starts off with the Giants not being strong enough to run through the banner and they just get bumped off. So it's not a strong start for them. And then Becky, their fullback, and I don't know what that position <laughs> does. And there's not that many kids on the team. So it looks like they all kind of play all positions at some point. She's on the sidelines in a cheerleading uniform. So she's cheering. And then we have Kevin and Danny. They they go into the middle to flip the coin to see who gets the ball first. They up the ante by putting their businesses on the line. Kevin's dealership and Danny's gas station, winner takes all. So now there are some real stakes to this game. Starts out with Marcus missing the ball during the kickoff and takes poor Johnny um, out in a painful way, ba- basically handing the ball to the Cowboys. It doesn't take long for the Cowboys to score, but the Giants do manage a few tackles, which I was pretty impressed with. Then it's Giants possession. Tad gets the handoff, but just runs around in circles, begging the ref to blow the whistle, which kind of remember reminded me of um, not completely similar, but conversations I would have with referees during soccer games. I I was not a very good soccer player. Our team was not exceptional, and I believe it was my sophomore year they decided that they were still going to play the reserve game, even though we didn't really have enough girls. We had no substitutes. So we were on the field the entire time. They had taken me off of the varsity squad to be in goal in reserve, which was totally cool, except uh, because we weren't great, 
my team kept kicking the ball at our goal. So I was doing double defending. <laughs> I was defending from our own team and the opposing team. And at a certain point in the game, I'm looking at the ref just crying, going, when is this over? When is this over? And she's looking at me like, five minutes, sweetie, five minutes. <laughs> so him going, blow the whistle, blow the whistle, Tad running in circles, just kind of reminded me of that. I have so many sports stories I could share with you. We won't do that today. Maybe a few more. I don't know what's going to happen. Anywho, when Tad eventually gets tackled, there's a fumble. So then it's Cowboys position again. Spike runs the ball in with Tad literally hanging onto his short tails. So they're on the board. Hanon then puts some sticky stuff on his hands to help catch it. Uh, but during the, what's that called? The spike? I don't know. You know, all my technical lingo lingo here when junior the quarterback gets the ball <laughs> this is getting worse um he he during that point Hanon has now accidentally gotten his hands stuck to his jersey he still runs down the field but the ball takes him out uh so he does not actually catch the ball poor guy spike then threatens jake they're back on the the field cowboy ball spike threatens drake who turtles into his pads um and when he hits him his helmet goes flying off but it's okay because jake's head is safely in his uniform cowboys recover the kickoff and score again end of first half and the team has had enough they're ready to quit to put themselves on the injured list that's when danny shares with them that when he was 10 he put himself on the injured list and never got off then they go around in the circle and share times when they were winners. Uh, Danny did, in fact, beat Kevin, his brother, in a foot race. Um, someone, I think it was Jake, was the only person on a fishing trip in his family not to throw up. Um, Zoltek beat his brothers in a cow dung tossing contest at the fair. Slightly ridiculous stories, but it starts to build even more camaraderie among the group. And that's when they get this idea that 99 times out of 100, 9 times out of 10, they might get beat, but that leaves one time. So that becomes the chant, one time, one time. It's just the pep talk they need. So they go rounding out of the locker room, determined to give it their all in the second half. Thankfully, Junior starts to run the ball, getting them their first run first down and then there's a reverse to tad who doesn't run in circles which gives them a touchdown so our giants are on the board cowboys have the ball and junior makes a good tackle but spike takes him out after the play getting a foul this sets becky the ice box off so she does the only rational thing she throws down her pom-poms puts on her pads and heads to the game uh, she takes spike out during the next play forcing a fumble and then they called Chicken Little Flea flick, Flicker on two. The Giants try to pitch to Johnny, um, the young boy who misses his dad, who runs it in for a touchdown when he sees his dad under the goalpost waiting for him. Dad had made it to the game, so he sees his dad and is running to his dad and avoids all the tackles. So sweet moment there. Then Jake miraculously gets a tackle, and... Um, which doesn't make any sense how Jake was able to do that. And to keep that momentum going, that's when he hands out the antacids and the foaming, you know, foaming mouth for intimidation to get into the Cowboys head. It works. There's a turnover. So then Hanon actually catches the ball. Um, the next toss by imagining it's a roll of toilet paper, tying the game. Cowboy possession. It takes the whole team to take down Spike twice. 
Kevin tries then to use a play from his glory days, but the Giants anticipate it and stop him on the goal line. Like Spike is literally at the goal line, has not crossed or touched the line. Giants ball with four seconds left, which means time for one more play. And it's one that Nubia, Nubia has been working on that assistant coach. It's called the annexation of Puerto Rico. I did read somewhere that there was no actual play on for the play when they started filming, <laughs> which I think is fun. Uh, but it ends up being kind of a fake. Um, so it looks like Junior's handed off to somebody else. Junior's back in the game after getting hit really hard. Then everybody thinks that the icebox has it and she's running. She gets tackled. Spike feels, you know, haha, I took her down, only to find out that the ball had been put down on the ground and Zoltek had picked it up. And now this asthmatic kid who loves lunch and can barely breathe is running down the field. Um, he almost gets tackled, tosses it behind him to junior junior starts to run, tosses it behind him as he gets hit to Jake and it's Jake scrawny, big glassed glasses, snot bubbled Jake who scores the, the winning touchdown and immediately runs into the goalpost, which, you know, feels like something I would do, but giants win. Oh, and then that's basically the end of the game, the, the movie. There's a little more. We'll talk about the, the falling action and conclusion here in a second. Um, some thoughts on the climax. In real life, the, the Giants don't win. I acknowledge that. <laughs> but they should because at the end of the day, they had fun. They played their game. They put themselves out there and they gave it a shot. And that's why I like underdog movies so much. They usually make me cry. I stop myself from crying at this one. But I love it when... When kids and adults, they're just willing to try um, because sometimes you can talk yourself out of that. You you can be like um, Luca in the Pixar movie, Luca, who, who, you know, gets silenced by that voice they name Bruno in his head. And so when he starts yelling, silencio, Bruno, he gets the courage to know I'm not going to listen to that voice that's telling me to stop, that's telling me I'm not good enough. I'm just going to go out there. And so I, I love that about underdog movies um, and this one in particular. Who in their right mind would put their livelihood on a peewee football game? Poor choice by both men putting their businesses up. The just stupid brotherly ego move. Boy, do I like the parents of the Giants. Early in the movie, and I think I mentioned this in the – um the lazy internet research. They spent an evening celebrating the team at Danny's house. It was almost like a mini pep rally with just the parents. They have a stage, the logo for the kids. He calls out their name. They come down all excited. Um, they start to get nicknames and that kind of thing. There's really bad dip. And then at the game, they're all, all these parents that I don't know if they knew each other before, but they, they're huddled together. So proud of their kids. And I just, I love that, that kind of that community. And, um, it's a small town, so I'm no, I'm sure there's kind of a bit of that, but I just, I really like them coming together, knowing their kids are not very good, but cheering them on. Like they are the best players on the field. Next question. Why didn't junior try out for the Cowboys at the beginning of the movie? I don't think they ever really explain that. He obviously loves football and he has played before. I mean, he has skill and he immediately joins the Giants when they ask. So so it's not like he has something against organized sports or his mom wouldn't let him. That's just an unanswered question to me. Not only why he didn't try out, but then why he did actually stick with them. I know at a certain point, Kevin um, is spying on the Giants practicing 
and he sees that that junior is good, but he never then goes after him to get him on the team like he does with Spike. So I thought that was interesting. I also love that at the end of the game, Kevin's wife is leading the cheer squad for the Giants. It's just brilliant. And it just so happens that it's the mom from the monster squad is Kevin's wife. And she is also the mom in the Goonies. She's been in a lot of 80s and 90s kids movies. And I just, I, she's always been familiar to me. I don't know her name. I should look that up. Um, But it was fun to see her in this as well. So falling action conclusion. Danny, the winning coach, invites the Cowboys to join up with the Giants. One town, one team. And Kevin's like, yeah, I'll go tell my boys. And then he asks Kevin to coach with them. And he tells him that he has to think about it, which is just a jerk move. I don't understand why he had to do that. I know it's an ego thing, but come on, dude. Um, You know, down in your heart of hearts, too, Danny was like, I really shouldn't be coaching. I don't know a ton about football, but they could have stepped up. I wish they had kind of done that a little different. Kevin then asks if Danny is going to hold hold him to the bed about the car dealership. And Danny, being the sensible guy, offers a compromise. So as I mentioned, the, the town water tower verbiage says, home of football's great Kevin O'Shea. And so then you see it transition because it's been changed in the compromise to home of the O'Shea brothers. So in the end, it is Danny kind of pushing for the vision that Kevin had said he had wanted. Oh, and at the end of the game... Becky and Junior kind of share a very brief but almost flirty moment. So one would like to believe that one day they date. Which leads us to did this need a sequel? I don't know. I don't think so. I kind of wish that um, it, it doesn't get set up well. But I love how at the end of the Sandlot, they kind of do the, the epilogue of this is where each of the kids went. And they kind of disappear off the field. It's set up that way because the whole movie is a flashback where this is not, but I kind of wished we could have had some of that, those moments. Um, but before we get into the final, final wrap up life lessons, I kind of think there are a couple, uh, first, and I've mentioned it before to let kids be kids, let them play, let them be weird, let them try and fail and grow. I mean, I was a kid that grew up in organized sports. I kind of call myself a half athlete. (laughs) I was the coachable kid who always knew where she was supposed to be on the field and what she was supposed to do. The actual execution of that something was questionable. It was often hit or miss. But the most fun I had playing was on a team that wasn't great because it was fun. We had fun. There was no pressure, no expectation. There was just a team of girls trying their best, celebrating their successes and quickly moving on from the losses because there were a lot. It was a lot of fun. And I think every kid, especially at that age of the Little Giants, deserves the chance to try. You know, there are going to be, once you get into school, you're going to try out and get cut for the team. Um, And I love how Danny's like, no, you know, every kid deserves to be out on that field. He had deserved to be out on that field when he was little. Uh, I also think a, a lesson is to play your game, your game. Don't play someone else's. Don't think you have to act or behave like anyone else. The, the, Giants end up winning because they play their own game. Be weird and gassy like Zoltek and optimistic. Be you. It doesn't mean you'll win the big game every time or get the guy, but it does mean that you didn't sell out. And so I think that kind of is a lesson you take away from it too. And and I mentioned this before, and I the idea came to me as, you know, as I was watching the movie, but then it was really solidified and I and I had mentioned it earlier. 
the fact that Ed O'Neill as Kevin O'Shea was the antagonist, but wasn't a villain. And I thought that was just a perfect way to put it. It was in the ESPN article. You might not agree with someone. You might disagree with their motives, their behavior, their ambitions, but it doesn't make them a villain. Preface, there can be toxic people in our lives that we need to cut out. So I don't want to insinuate that all of the antagonists are not really villains because there might be a villain in your life. But to just end relationships because they're difficult is foolhardy. Danny and Kevin, I know they're siblings, but they never ended that relationship. So much so that um, Becky still had a relationship with her aunt and uncle. She still saw them as compassionate, responsible adult figures that she could turn to. And, and I love that about this movie, that even in certain moments, too, you would see that Kevin wasn't a bad guy. When Spike takes out Junior after a play is done, he, he turns to Spike's dad and is like, uh, no, I'm going to ask you and your son to leave this field if that happens again. He... He was out to win, but not at any cost. And so I think that's a stand-up thing. The way he treats Becky, um, sure, he should have invited her on the team, but he sees greatness in her, and he tells her that too. And and so I, there's just a lot to that fact that, you know, the antagonist doesn't have to be the villain, um, that people are, they contain multitudes, If I, as I've said several times on this podcast. <laughs> And, and that we just, we need to be aware of that. We need to look for it every once in a while and realize that in some stories, we might be someone's antagonist. Doesn't make us the villain, but maybe we need to figure out why they see us in that light and, and work to change. And, and that's what I like to think happens in this movie at the end, that Danny and Kevin start to spend more time together and Danny helps Kevin um, kind of brush off that chip on his shoulder a little. I don't know. I like that the movie didn't become a hurtful war. Final wrap up, character recasting. No, don't touch the characters. I love all the characters. I, the entire crew was fantastic. Does this or did this need a sequel? I don't think so. No, I wouldn't have given this a sequel. Like I said, I, uh, an epilogue would have been fun to know where the kids went after. Uh, but no, I don't think it needed a sequel. I don't think anybody really thinks any of the little giants. Well, who knows? kids are just miraculous and they bounce back and they grow and they grow muscles. <laughs> Maybe the, the giants did go on to play football. Um, but yeah, I don't think it needed more rewatchability. Absolutely. There are some great, like I mentioned, there are some great quotes. You need to rewatch it just to get me reading the quotes out of your mind. Um, but just really fun. I really, really like the kids in this one, much like I do with the Sandlot. Their quirkiness, uh, they just do an amazing job with that. And having them talk like kids and think like kids is a lot of fun. But what do you think? Do you like the Little Giants? Is this one of your favorite 90s kids sports movies? What is your favorite 90s kids sports movie? But that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening. Really, it is so appreciated. If you haven't already, I hope you subscribe so we can keep going on this journey together. And if you've got the time, it would be awesome if you could rate and review. Only if it's nice, please. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at at GnomeGirlM. And on Facebook, is a bit of fun with Emily. Go have yourself a bit of fun today. And I will see you next time.